When I fall, I got parachutes. 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 What you gonna say? What you gonna do? What you gonna gonna say? Is what they say true? And all these questions, I make sure I am still on top. And all these questions, I make sure this train is hard to stop. No matter what I say or do, no matter the song or two, it's me you cannot drop. I'm in a parachute up in the sky. I- I'm in a parachute. I'm soaring down. Parachute. I'm soaring down. When I fall, I got parachutes. Politicize every song I sing. Tell you about our reality. You're living in a virtual reality. You're sucking on the tit that feeds you lies. Getting screwed by a system of ties to our demise. We are blamed. Why blame us? That's insane. All we know is pain. Control us for 300 years. Our epitome of fears is in a machine that broke us. Made us get out of focus. Preacher told us, stop that hocus pocus. Look what we had. Our culture was just a fad. What they didn't still do is sad. It makes me mad. Why be racist? It's made us faceless. Made us into your slaves. Land slaves for your wage. In this first world country, you're the entire Repeat and recycle. Put more money in guns. We make war to be free. We make war to be free. Are we really? Giving him my all. Giving him my all. Gotta stand tall cause I'm giving him my all. Good morning. Welcome to Wake the F Up on 101.5 UMFM. We are Thursdays, 11 to 11.30. My name is Christina. I use pronouns she, her. And my name is Karan and I use he, him pronouns. The UMFM 101.5 broadcasts at 1200 watts from the University of Manitoba, located on Treaty 1 territory, the original lands of Anishinaabe, Nihayawak, Oji Cree, Dakota, and Dene peoples, and on the homeland of the Metis Nation. Thanks, Karan. So, a little while ago, me and Karan popped into one of the UMSU Board of Directors meetings, and it just so happened that we came around at a meeting where they were doing this really interesting workshop where they were basically asking for opinions on how the university should address various issues of sexual assault. And it kind of asked us these questions. We got together into little groups and talked about what might be an appropriate answer. And there were some questions that from there that kind of stuck with us that we're like, we're still thinking about it and we'd like to open it up to to you and maybe it'll be some food for thought. Maybe you'll come up with an answer better than we have. Kran, what's one of the questions that they asked us? Well, the very first one that they asked us was kind of the question that needs to be addressed the most and especially on university campuses where sexual assault is such a prevalent issue. This question leads directly into all other questions that we have. So what keeps people from talking about their own sexual assault experiences on campus? And, and this was a question that leeway into more significant questions that what issues do survivors have accessing their rights in terms of getting help, getting authorized withdrawals in their courses, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And the answer that almost every single person in groups, I imagine, would have come up with, at least in uh, my little group, every single person came up with that answer. And it was that there's no streamlined way of accessing resources so first if you want to report a case of sexual assault you have to go to the office of human rights and conflict management then they will tell you whether or not an investigator will be assigned to your case now that'll take at least three to six months if the case goes into investigation 
Meanwhile, you have to go to student advocacy located in a completely different building. And you have to request for an authorized withdrawal, explaining to them the same thing you explained to Office of Human Rights and Conflict Management, why you need an AW. Then you need to go to counseling withdrawal. Just in case people forget, authorized withdrawal. You then need to go to student counseling, and then they will see if you have a... Legitimate case. And then they will see if you are emergent enough to get a clinic counselor or just a regular counselor in that moment. If not, um, sorry, the next available counselor is open for November 28th. (laughs) And (laughs) that's not acceptable. That's not, that's just not how it should go. Yeah. And what that sounds like to me is you have a pretty good understanding of what that looks like in a campus specific setting in terms of how it's addressed, which is the answer that I was expecting to come from everyone is talking about how complex and how uh, how many different steps you have to go through on the campus. But people also actually started throwing out some ideas of like why in general it's difficult to disclose this to authorities and for I guess for people like us it's incredibly obvious it's we're very uh very aware of rape culture and it's something that's very obvious to us so but I think it's just worth mentioning here maybe just a little bit about why it's so incredibly difficult for a survivor to disclose in the first place if they do go through the process of wanting to report it so the the survivor will most likely not be believed. Most instances, it is uh, a man committing a crime against a woman. That's not all of the instances, of course, but that is usually what's happening. So uh, she will not be believed. Every single time this topic comes up, everyone talks about the anxieties they have about false accusations, which is... Yes, false accusations are a bad thing, but that is less than 1% of the total reports that are made. And as for the assaults that do happen... It's what, what, less than 50% that are ever reported. Oh, very little assaults are reported on campus. And it's more so disclosures because sometimes survivors don't even want action to be taken against their perpetrator. They just want to get help to work through the trauma that they have been induced with. Yeah, yeah. So I, I don't know. Yeah, that's... It's just, it's so obvious to us, and we could go on and on about the influences of rock culture that leads to why women are never believed on something like this, but I just... I just thought it important to mention there that every single time, like, I just, I I can't stand having this conversation where somebody brings up the issue of false accusations because that is them segueing into why the whole situation should be basically dismissed from their consciousness and just move on and this is not an issue and blah, blah, blah. And I, I just, I just needed to get that out there. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Because it is so frustrating because people love to fixate on something that isn't the issue just so that they can actually get out of talking about the issue at hand because they don't really want to do anything about it until it happens to them or someone they know Mm -hmm. which really really sucks because that really shouldn't be what it takes to turn someone around and be like hey dude this is a real issue especially Uh, a very rampant issue very violent not great if you could just uh get on board with combating it that'd be great Mm -hmm. but that's not what the reality is and and In the consultation that we had in the UMSA chambers, everyone talked about how hard it is to access help 
through various departments on university. And this is in tandem with all the other stigmatizations of sexual assault and talking about assault and, you know, victim blaming, victim blaming and there being policies in place where you are discouraged from talking about what happened to you until the investigation takes place, because that can tamper with credibility, even though I don't see how that happens. Mm -hmm. And everyone recognizes that everyone in that meeting to some extent, was able to recognize that, which was refreshing to see. Totally, yeah. Because not everyone gets it. And I think the main issue, especially when coming to campus and campus demographics in general, was that we need to have a center where all of these resources are available and where identity is kept a lot more confidential than it is now in terms of, oh, hey, I have to go to student advocacy because this happened to me and now I have to get an AW, et cetera, et cetera. And it's, it's something that everyone recognizes that identity, yes, the university tries hard to keep it anonymous, but at some point you have to start talking about your issues because you can't keep explaining to everyone why you're at student advocacy all the time, why you are at student counseling at all times, et cetera, et cetera. And there are universities out there like U of T and UBC who have tried to make a more streamlined version really? for accessing these resources. They have sexual assault resource centers that make it easier for survivors to access everything that they need to in one place as Thank opposed goodness. to going from place to place. And this is something that the U of M needs to adopt right away. Desperately. <laughs> because the amount of cases that the student counseling center has reported that stemmed from sexual assault is too high. It's too high to actually just turn a blind eye towards it. Yeah, absolutely. I didn't I didn't even know that those universities were on board with that. That is fantastic. So that is incredibly important because if that is a crime that you have experienced, you don't want to have to go through and re-explain that experience a thousand times over. It should be such that if this crime was committed against you, you go to one place, you tell your story and say by somebody who is like trained to receive that perhaps a counselor of sorts to receive that exact information and you know get your story out ask you all the questions that they need from you and then let them go forward with whatever else it is so that you're only dealing with one person and not having to relive your trauma over and over again that's what it should look like so i don't know if the other universities uh, have something like that or are working towards something like that which hopefully they are um, but if that were to happen at the university of manitoba that's absolutely a crucial characteristic that i think would need to be in that kind of program and it would be really beneficial for the U of M to have something like that, too, because at the UBC, their sexual assault support center is f- completely student run. And it was established in 2002, which is. Oh, wow. <laughs> which is a long time. 16 years. That's that's a long time. Yeah. And I can't believe it has to be student run, though. Like, as if they wouldn't have the resources to have staff do this. I I wonder if the students are paid for it. Something to look into. And the fact that that's even even a question, you know, just goes to show how little support there is. But sorry, go on. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Which I, I do like the design of the SASC by the Alma Mater Society of UBC. And it, on its website, it says, 
Established in 2002, the SASC is committed to the education, support, and empowerment of anyone affected by sexualized violence. As an intersectional and anti-violence organization, no one is turned away regardless of their gender identity, the type of violence experienced, or their legal status. I like the sound of that. And the SASC offers various resources, including crisis or short-term emotional support, legal, medical, and campus-related advocacy and accompaniment, support in accessing accommodations and concessions, free education and outreach, volunteer programs, safer sex and menstrual products, community lending library, healthier masculinities program, including Mm -hmm. a men's circle, volunteer program, and events. (laughs) Can I get a hell yeah to all of the above? (laughs) (laughs) I, I just can't believe that they established this and you know what? I'm sure that they've made changes to their center throughout the years. But having such a thing established since 2002, to me, is incredible. Yeah. And, I'm really glad to hear that. And I really hope that in all the consultations that the university is doing, they adopt something like what U of T has or of what something like UBC has. Because mm-hmm. I think that that's imperative to have on every campus. And we talk about all these issues that in terms of sexual violence, et cetera, et cetera, and everything that we've been talking about with the anti-abortionists on campus and all of that. And I just really also want to point out that all of these issues are not a part of the political spectrum, which is something that I've been hearing a lot right now. Mm -hmm. I've been hearing a lot on what freedom of speech is and... All of that and yeah. how like we are these Antifa social justice warriors, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. And I just want to really acknowledge because it does bother me when those terms come in and are thrown at me in like derogatory yeah. ways. It's very dismissive. It's their way of just kind of brushing it off and saying, oh, that's just another left wing issue. Which is not the reality. I know a lot of people who are conservatives who take these issues to heart. They don't like seeing anti-abortionists on campus. Mm -hmm. They don't like seeing that sexual violence is such a prevalent issue on campus. They want to help to abolish these issues. These are issues that affect everyone, not just liberals. You know, we're all like... (laughs) (laughs) And I just really wanted to acknowledge that too because that is something that has been eating up the insides of my brain for a long time now and I just hate that all these issues are politicized to such an extent and it just bothers me yeah but anyway that was one of the questions (laughs) thank you for bringing that up that's such (laughs) a good point (laughs) yeah I just yeah I've been uh very put down by that recently Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and I just wanted to lightly rant about it on air I guess yeah which Thank you for that. Feels good. So thanks I for think, listening, everyone. <laughs> I think everyone who's concerned with social justice can like give you a big thank you for that. <laughs> so relevant. Um, sorry, th- go on. That was one of the questions that we had in the consultation. And another one that really, really ate up a lot of time and still is unanswered is that should the university ban any sort of romantic or sexual relationships between students and professors. And we both have some thoughts thoughts on it. 
It's a good question. It's it's really interesting to think about because as like, you know, when we learn about consent, for example, we know that any situation in which there's a power dynamic, consent can be given. But yet I think about the campus and I think about like <laughs> to be honest, how many students have crushes on their professors and how it's definitely not out of the ordinary on campuses anywhere for there to be like a significant amount of relationships between like grad grad students and their professors. And I'm just like, something about this is different. What's what is different about this? Because if I think about my job, for example, I experience much less of a desire to ever want to engage in relationships with my boss. And I'm just like, nope, that's a power dynamic. And even with my coworkers, like I'm just like, that's kind of out of the question there. But there's something different about the university environment. And I've really been trying to put my finger on it. Like, what is it? What is that thing that why is it possible that it's more acceptable for there to be relationships between students and professors? So I guess something that uh, me and Crown were kind of talking about when we were brainstorming this is that when you're in university, you're generally studying something that you're quite passionate about. There's really no reason to be in university if you're not at this point because yeah. it's so expensive. <laughs> <laughs> it's like you need to be driven by passion. Otherwise, it's often kind of a waste of time. But yeah, so you're in there, you're in your class and you're passionate about this thing. You're going through all this work to learn about it and you're learning about it from somebody who has been in your shoes and they're actually more knowledgeable about it and they've gone through all the pains and now they're spreading that knowledge to other people and it's very inspiring and it's very there's something about it that just really you know you get this common understanding between your classmates and with your professor because you're all talking about this common thing that you all care about a lot and it's it is easy because like how many people in your workplace are passionate about the same thing as you are (laughs) Not a lot of people. Exactly. Especially when you take uh, my example of doing firefighting, forest firefighting over the summer, like me working in a hyper-masculine work environment. Like, I don't think so. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And like people at my work are racist as hell. So I find nothing common over there. Like, let me tell you. Exactly. But, But I guess the question is, how do we combat the sexual violence that still occurs despite these these notions of oh well they're consenting adults right like we Mm -hmm. still need to acknowledge that the consensual aspects of these relationships are not the ones that we're trying to attack or tackle or whatever term you want to use but it is the sexual violence that we are trying to stop and Mm -hmm. how do we do that and a few like a couple weeks ago, I saw an article that the Université Laval students have decided that and have come to a conclusion with administration that banning these relationships is what is good for their society. And that's that's great for them. Those policies will be implemented. And the question is, is that a policy that would benefit the U of M society? And in my opinion, I think it would, especially in light of recent events where five university professors have come under investigation and their cases are being looked into. And I know that there is a whole conversation that what happens to the consensual relationships. And in my opinion, there should be these policies in place and there should be an out 
of these policies as well so that you don't mm-hmm. breach them. I think there should be papers that enable you to disclose a relationship while keeping anonymity in check and also to ensure the students confidentiality and their privacy and respect that and there should be an out of these policies as well so that it ensures that you are not breaching it were you to have consensual relationships with your students and i th- i think that's fine i think that it happens all the time and that's totally acceptable as long as both people acknowledge that there is a power imbalance in their relationship and they are not going to let it affect them of course now signing these policies to get out of these policies saying that hey i'm dating a student or something like that does not make it okay if you were to still use your position of power to violate that student mm-hmm. and especially sexually assault them etc cetera, etc cetera, obviously but these policy sign outs quote unquote should also have those clauses in check so that mm-hmm. student safety is ensured because yeah students are most likely to be the victims and survivors of these assaults that are in nature inherently imbalanced by power and it's in my opinion i think that the university of manitoba students and staff would equally benefit from that yeah. from disclosing to their faculty in a very confidential way not everyone needs to know uh that this is something that's happening and i think christina mentioned some like interim measures that can be taken as well so yeah like i would say if the student was in the professor's class for example somebody else should grade that student's work um and like there should be some kind of policy in place on what they would do about letters of recommendation so like you know obviously if a professor is writing a letter of recommendation for a student they have a relationship with there's some like conflict of interest there so that probably shouldn't be allowed or you know some kind of policy in place something like that so it's almost sounding to me that like maybe you're like you're undecided now i'm decided undecided too on whether or not this should be banned because if not banned then at least there should be policies in mm-hmm. place mm-hmm. like for me i think i'm kind of leaning towards it being allowed because i see it and i'm like yeah you know two adults can consent to this but there is just this huge risk for something to go wrong and mm-hmm. if that does happen the administration like the university should be taking care of the people involved the university if something does go wrong the university's response to it should not be oh well you shouldn't have had this relationship in the first place you knew the risks blah 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 they should be accommodating of this legitimate relationship between the two adults and take the steps necessary in order to handle it from there So they should, like, if something went wrong, for example, the professor sexually assaults the student, they should make it easy for that student to get away from the professor, whether that's bringing in a substitute for that class, whether that's suspending the professor entirely, make it easy for the student to switch their section. And the university makes it really difficult in any other circumstance for students to switch sections. Like, it's just, they have so much in place against this, and they always like to bring up, oh, well, you should have this, oh, well, you should have that. But the thing is, this is like, I don't know, this is... This is something that needs to be respected and they should make it easier. And I think my stance on it comes from the fact that you mentioned that the tiny risk of, oh, well, what if it goes wrong? Because what if it goes wrong is the question that we are addressing Mm -hmm. at hand. And while I completely understand that, like, there's legitimate consensual relationships 
despite of power imbalances, I think that those are not like the issue at hand. Mm -hmm. And if there were sign outs of policies that ensure that, you know, you're not breaching a policy, I don't see how that would delegitimize an issue or a relationship in any way. Um, But I guess it's still hard to answer this question. Mm -hmm. Before we wrap up today, I just want to review and point out that here in regards to whether professors should be allowed to have relationships with students, uh, Karan was mostly speaking on the important aspect of what happens in the case of sexual assault. And I was definitely focusing on the point of this type of relationship should be respected. So I believe strongly in this because there is a huge tendency in our society to see non-traditional, quote-unquote non-traditional relationships as frivolous. Only marriages are taken seriously, and this is all part of the narrative that says the gold standard for relationships is between one man and one woman who get married. But the fact is, relationships where people aren't married are valid, Relationships that aren't monogamous are valid. And I believe that there's a larger stigma attached to professor-student relationships than there needs to be. And to me, this is a sex-positive perspective. There is something real here that needs to be defended. So given this, it's fundamental that steps are taken to legitimize these relationships and ensure the safety of everyone involved in the event that something goes wrong. Because, of course, there is a higher likelihood that something could go very wrong given the power dynamic. (laughs) So that's all the time we have this time around. Um, We've got some pretty thought-provoking and controversial topics going today. We would love to hear from you. Uh, Message us on our Instagram. It's wake the F up, UMFM, all lowercase. Thanks so much, Kren. Thanks, Christina. And remember, folks, we air Thursdays 11 to 1130. And you'll hear us ranting next week. Thank you so much. Most importantly, I will survive.